0: your stomach just drops out because Mm -hmm. from then on you're watching carol as this doomed character
1: Hello, 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 no script listeners. Welcome back to No Script, the podcast, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jacob Mann Christensen, and I'm delighted today, not because Jackson is not with us. Please don't hear me say that. I miss Jackson. I love to talk with Jackson, but. One of the really fun things about this podcast is that every season we try to have another voice come into our conversations. And so this week I am really thrilled to be not talking with Jackson, but instead talking with Jeffrey Sweet, who is a playwright? Someone that I have met in person a couple of times. I've seen uh, Jeffries perform his one-person show. I've read his playwriting books. The way I learned playwriting in college was largely based on your textbooks. <laughs> and uh, I, so, and, I, and I've I've admired you as a playwright for a long time too, including pre- uh, directing one of your plays, *Porch*, a number of years ago. Uh, so it's been it's sort of thrilling for me to get to have this conversation with you. And welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Absolutely. Do you want to just tell folks a little bit about who you are?
0: Um, I uh, have stumbled into being a hyphenate. I'm primarily a playwright, but I'm also a theater journalist. I've written books about uh, Second City and the O'Neill Center. In fact, my Second City book, Something Wonderful Right Away, is going to come out in a new edition later this year. Hmm. Um, so there'll be that. I also teach Uh, I teach classes online, if you're interested in that. uh, The website is thenegotiatingstage.com, because I think all scenes are negotiations. Um, I also am posting in sort of a haphazard way, mini lectures on YouTube, uh, based on my book, The Dramatist Toolkit. So if you just toss my name, Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, suite into uh, uh, the search engine on YouTube, Anything that begins with a number is uh, uh, one of my many lectures, uh, 001 being the first lecture and 006 being the most recent lecture. Um, I just got tired of <laughs> explaining the same stuff over and over and over and over again. So now I say to people, oh, okay, negotiating over objects, go to 006 on, because I just don't want to say it for the 80th time. But uh, it, it, it's there. It's It's free. It does lead you back to the negotiating stage if you want to uh, actually work with me. That's pretty much it, except that um, uh, we're raising money to try to take my most recent play, Counselor, to the Edinburgh Fringe in 2-3. And if you're uh, absolutely obsessed with the idea of supporting that, uh, you can do that.
1: So, yeah, I, uh, absolutely and I I personally encourage everybody to check out all of those things. Uh, that that were mentioned there. I, you may know this already because I know you've listened a little bit to the podcast and we've yeah. covered a couple of your plays. Although you may not know the sort of the broad influence that the way that you think about playwriting has had on our podcast, primarily because Jackson and I went to school together and both of us were trained in playwriting by a guy who you know real well, Jeff Barker, and oh. who uses most of your material in the way that he did teach playwriting when he was teaching theater. And so we talk about on the podcast, things like negotiating over objects, how to work out what the negotiation behind the negotiation is in scenes. Uh, And so I I think I think anybody who is interested in the far future and studying the impact of Jeffrey Sweet. You uh, could listen to our podcast some and think, and listen to how we talk about plays because I think a lot of that comes from you by way of your teaching and your books.
0: Well, you're now. Go- I'm going to have to go out and buy a bigger hat now. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we we also uh, th- th- this is going to be a really cool episode for a lot of reasons. A lot of our special guest episodes have been really fun. We always try to find somebody with some sort of unique angle or interesting, uh, I- you know, insert into the play that we're talking about um, and. And this episode, we're talking about a play by Lanford Wilson, Lemon Sky, a really delightful little play. And it's it's really special to have Jeffrey Sweet on the podcast because of your connection with Lanford Wilson.
0: Yeah, which started with Lemon Sky when I saw it off Broadway in a production starring a very young Christopher Walken and Charles Durning. And that's just back before uh, Christopher Walken turned into the menacing figure he is now, back when he looked (laughs) angelic. And uh, the play had a huge impact on me, although it didn't have much relationship to my personal life. I mean, I'm not gay. I didn't live in California. I didn't have that relationship with my parents. But something rumbling underneath that play really had a deep effect on me, both thematically and in terms of craft. And then later, when I got to know Lanford pretty well, and we would have pretty long, detailed conversations, I was able to ask him a great deal about uh, uh, how he came to write Lemon Sky and, and some technical things. So some of this, I'll be happy to share as, uh, as we go along. But uh, uh, and, and even after Lanford uh, died, I, I, I started learning. I, I continued to learn things about Lemon Sky. Like, do you know who the original Alan was in the first reading at the O'Neill Center?
1: Uh, I actually do know that, but only because I have it written down from my research about the play uh, that uh, I I tell you what, I actually don't have it written down, but I do remember
0: Michael Douglas,
1: Michael Douglas. Yes. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, It it was at the, uh, the play was read at the O'Neill center. um, The second year of the O'Neill center. I know this because I wrote a book about the O'Neill called the O'Neill. And uh, it's. Uh, it, 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 the, I think that the play is about a lot of things, including a lot of things that I think Lanford wasn't entirely aware of as he was writing it, since it was basically pouring out of him in a rush. It's one of the fastest plays he wrote.
1: Yeah, um, you can so, sort of see that from the opening monologue, even the sense of like, it's finally time. Here I go. And then a gush.
0: Well, he, it, it started that way. I mean, he, he sat down intending in a work session to write a worker on another play he was working on called serenading Louie, which is a terrific play and then all of a sudden a voice started speaking to him and started speaking that opening monologue wow uh, it was it was kind of a mystical experience for him he, he said what the hell is this and then he said maybe i should pay attention to this hmm. and and he started writing it as fast as it came into his head uh, and uh, he said it's uh, playwrights frequently talk about characters dictating to them he said that this was the most direct overt dictation uh he'd ever experienced as a playwright that it just came straight out of him sometimes surprising him with what uh the the voice sometimes surprised him by what by what it was saying so it was really a play that was just
1: yeah, he writes that into the text, too. There's that great in that opening mind. Like just the, I love that line about how he's been trying to work on it and the characters are saying things he didn't want them to say, not speaking with the lines that he expected them to speak. I mean, that's a that's a fantastic way to think about the craft even. Yeah.
0: So anyway, there, there are more stories about that, which are, will be appropriate. When we get there.
1: Yes. And, and uh, uh, is it the play is the play of yours. uh, Is it bluff that is dedicated to Lanford Wilson? Oh yeah. (laughs) And and so that's interesting to me because, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but I, those two plays, there's some similarities There are in in style and structure and and the way that outside characters comment on like the present tense action.
0: Yeah. Well, I, 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 I told Lanford that I thought I was writing a play that I was going to dedicate to him. So I finally dedicated the play. He said, uh, he, he said, and I, I gave him the play, and he says, okay, why did you dedicate this play to me? I say, I either dedicate the play to you or you sue me for plagiarism. Uh, <laughs> he's, he, he says, I'm sorry, I don't get it. What, what is it? I said, okay, there's a scene in Lemon Sky where... Um, there's a character who has died in an accident who describes to the narrator how she died. Now, obviously, if she's dead, she couldn't realistically be describing how she died. But if she were able to speak from the dead, this is the way she would speak. It's a hypothetical scene. I said, so in Bluff, when the mother enters into the scene, right towards the end of the play, she's not physically there, but she's... She says what she would say if she were able to bend the laws of physics and be there. And I said, that's a hypothetical scene, too. And Lanford says, oh, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) He says, "I, I, I see where it came from.
1: Yeah. You know. Well, that's, that's Yeah, wow. Well, we, we got so much to talk about. This is going to be a really great conversation. Real quick before we hop in, I just want to invite anybody who hasn't already to consider heading on over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast, all one word. And over there, you can choose to become a supporter of the show. We try to keep the support levels at a really accessible place. The lowest tier is a dollar a month. Even that's very helpful. Jackson and I could not continue to do what we do without the financial support from our listeners running a podcast is not free as much as we wish it were and, and Jackson and I are both students and so money is in short supply in our lives so if, if the folks on Patreon weren't supporting us this podcast would have ended long ago so we're very grateful to the folks over on Patreon who choose to do that if you do that there are some perks and benefits including knowing ahead of time what the scripts are going to be Jackson and I often will post about productions or things we're musing on but I think the real benefit is in knowing that you are part Part of what keeps this podcast rolling. So, thank you to everybody who's chosen to do that already. If you haven't, I encourage you to think about it. Patreon.com/slash/NoScriptPodcast. That's all I have to say about that because we got a much more interesting conversation ahead of us. Let me just quick do the overview sections here for Lemon Sky because I really want to hear a lot from Jeff Sweet today. Uh, As as mentioned already, this play was developed at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center uh, around 1968. Michael Douglas was the original Allen in those kinds of workshops, development processes. Uh, It was produced off-off Broadway at La Mama in 1970, and then at the Studio Arena Theater in Buffalo in 1970 again, where, as mentioned, uh, young Christopher Walken was Allen at that point. Finally moved to the Playhouse Theater in 1970. That's an off-Broadway house in New York City. Uh, much later on then, it was produced in a revival off-Broadway at Second Stage um, in 85. And that had Jeff Daniels and Cynthia Nixon, which just seems like, boy, I wish I had been around to see that production. Uh, there's, the, of course, the 1988 PBS movie. Uh, really, really great movie, really faithful adaption, not only of this story, but also of all the crazy stylistic and tonal choices that are made. The movie does a really nice job with that. Uh, Kevin Bacon is the Allen in that production. And you can also see, for those of you who are interested, a very, very young Casey Affleck as one of the younger brothers. Um, It's had a huge life um, in regional houses, and especially in educational theater. Uh, it continues to be done at colleges as a pretty high level. And then, of course, in 2011, just after the passing of Lamford Wilson, the Keene Company produced it at the Harold Clerman Theater in another off-Broadway revival, which was quite well-lauded and was sort of seen, at least in my research, as a real celebration of his work um, and, and, and what he was able to achieve in this sort of seminal piece of his uh, Lemon Sky. That's kind of a general overview of its life um in terms of a synopsis this play is about alan alan at the Present tense moment of the play. Let's see if I can get this in a in a way that's succinct. In the, in the action of the play, Alan is 17 and he has just graduated high school. He travels from Nebraska to California to meet his estranged father. Um, his father left Alan and his mother when they were in Nebraska a long while back and moved to California with a woman that he then married, Ronnie. Um, And has not really been involved in Alan and his mother's life uh, at that point. So Alan has not known him really growing up through his whole life. So Alan, graduating high school, travels across the Rockies. There's a whole description of traveling up that elevation and then down into California. Uh, He meets now this new family or or this other family that has come into being uh, sort of parallel lives to him and his mother's family. And that family is his, his estranged father, Douglas, his that the wife, the woman that he married, Ronnie, and they have two biological sons. So these would be Alan's half brothers, uh, Jerry and Jack. They're like, you know, in the eight to twelve range. Um, and then uh, Douglas and Ronnie also have two basically foster children living with them, Penny and Carol who are both 17, so that would be the same age as Alan is in the present moment of the play, uh, who are living with them uh, in through the, the foster system, basically, in California. Now, the, the plot, such as it is, mostly revolves around Alan getting to know these people, learning things about his family that he d- didn't know. There are some kind of internal conflicts, especially with Carol and, um, uh, excuse me, Carol and Penny, um, as they kind of have different personal things going on. His father is also very insistent that he works at this airplane building plant while Alan's trying to go to college. Um, And and then eventually what ends up occurring is that uh, all along the play, Alan is sort of learning about his father's, let's call him indiscretions. Uh, that he's had throughout his life, including apparently he makes a pass near the end of the play at Penny, one of the foster children living with him, uh, which sort of triggers a tumultuous series of events um, in which Douglas is accused of making this pass at Penny. And then, I don't know, I'd be interested to ask you, Jeff, whether you think this is in response or if it's a a decision he had made already. But sort of right on the heels of that, Douglas turns around and accuses Alan of being gay. Um, which again, this this play I don't think I mentioned. This play is set in the '50s, or at least the present tense moment is. So uh, that is, that is a much stronger, uh, more shameful accusation than it is now, or you know ever should have been. But uh a strong accusation made, um, and basically uh, Douglas sends Allen off. Um, Penny, Carol is also throughout the play on pills. She's trying to sort of get her life straight because she's engaged or soon to be engaged, I guess, with this, uh, super religious boyfriend of hers. Uh, Boy, there's so much going on here, because the thing I haven't mentioned is that the other major part of the play is that this is all happening while the characters are commenting on this action from in the future. Um, Alan, at least, is 12 years in the future, um, now I, I don't know if we're specifically supposed to believe that every other character is 12 years in the future or even if that really matters they're commenting from with, with foreknowledge about what happened in the past so they have all kinds of conversations about why they said this at a particular time who said that, who didn't say that at one point one of the characters says something like no, 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 you couldn't have mentioned that song when this conversation was going on that song wasn't even out at that point in time. So there's some questioning of the reliability of the memories that goes on. We learn after the present tense action of the play that Carol dies in an accident. And so Carol from death, from uh, from beyond the grave, is commenting on what was happening to her in that present tense moment. And so there's some sort of discussion, evaluation, examination of the the way these lives have developed after and in, in part because of what happened in that present tense action of the play. Are there any other like m- major plot or descriptions I'm missing there? This is sort of a hard play to describe.
0: It's 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 yeah, it's a, it's a deceptive play. Because it goes down easy, but it's but it's really uh, put together in a very sophisticated and complicated way. Maybe the biggest decision in the play is made by uh, Ronnie, the stepmother, who uh, joins with uh, her husband in exiling Alan, even though uh, Alan adores his stepmother. They really like each other a lot, but she realizes that it's a if, if she doesn't get rid of Alan, that her marriage is going to fall apart and she's going to be, you know, in hell. It's she's going to be broke. She'll have no way of living. That even the compromised way that she's living with, uh, with the father, uh, that's a possible life as opposed to uh, what would happen if the marriage mm-hmm. fell apart, which would be just disaster.
1: And you're right. It's, it's deceptively understated. There's just uh, both times that I read it even just today and before previous there, the line, like, I think you should go. It hit me like a ton of bricks, despite like it being five or six words.
0: And he doesn't disagree with the choice that she made. He absolutely understands why she makes the choice, although it hurts him deeply. And it's why, uh, that part is a great part. Um, the production that starred Jeff Daniels and Cynthia Nixon, the OB for performance from that production went to Jill Eikenberry playing mm-hmm. that part. Mm-hmm. And um, when you see the film, if you see the film, Lindsay Krauss gives one of her best performances in that part. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a deceptive yeah. part, but then the play is uh, the play is about so bloody much, and I'm sort of chomping mm-hmm. at the bit to, to to get into that. It's it's not so much a plot play. Here, let me toss this out. Please. Um, for one thing, maybe you remember my talking in, in, in my books about the technique of the power of the unspoken word. Mm-hmm. In your analysis, you just used a word that was never used in the in the play, which mm-hmm. is gay.
1: Yes, right. The word,
0: mm-hmm. the word gay, the word homosexual, never used in the play. Yes. And so uh, uh, we're left to figure that out. And indeed... Uh, uh, Alan, being closeted as a kid, is not going to say the word, and the father is is going to hint at it, but he's not going to say the word. Mm-hmm. So that's ticking underneath, and that makes it actually one of the earliest plays to directly address um, uh, homosexuality in uh, a commercial theater production.
1: And I, I'm interested. You you speak about it being like this unspoken thing when the accusation comes out near the end of the play. And what so fascinates me about that is that some of the other accusations about people in the play, or or suppositions or or whatever, are are spoken so boldly and brashly. Like they call Penny a dope just easily and ugly, just rolls off the tongue and carols a whore and promiscuous. It just rolls out in waves of words. And then by contrast, you're so right. This word that they can't bring themselves to say just fills up the room.
0: Yeah, but it fills up the room because we in the audience are supplying it. This is Mm. part of my theory is that if you want to get an idea across, don't say it. Create the circumstances under which the audience thinks it and, you know, the, the, the pressure to to, to, to complete that mm. uh, that equation. The, I, I think, as, I, as I've said a few times, the premises belong in the in, on the stage and the conclusions belong in the audience. And that's mm. part of the power of the play. The other thing is, and I said this to Lanford once, and he went, oh, uh, is that in a weird way, it's very similar to A Streetcar Named Desire. Mm. You know, you have an alpha male who's running the house according to his rules, and you have a more sensitive person with a secret coming into the house and challenging the ethos of the uh, uh, the power structure of the alpha male's uh, uh, rule in the house. So It's, I, it's that-
1: interesting. I was sort of thinking about it as a kind of reverse glass menagerie. Uh, the, the there's obviously this sort of narrative looking back elements, but the way that Tom in Glass Menagerie constantly wants to get out yeah. despite this powerful uh, figure in the home, Alan sort of in the reverse of that just wants to get in. And there is yeah. still this powerful domineering figure in the home. Yeah,
0: Alan desperately wants to have some kind of a father. He really wants that relationship to work. He wants a family. He wants connection. Uh And that certainly was a large part of uh, of Lanford's life. And eventually he found a family and a connection by coming to New York and being part of the off off Broadway scene, Mm. helping create a family at Circle Rep with uh, uh, Marshall Mason, the artistic director who directed most of his plays, although Marshall never directed Lemon Sky. Mm. Uh, It's the only major play of his that uh, that uh, he didn't uh, uh, direct. Uh, I said, well, didn't you direct the reading at the O'Neill? He says, no, I just sat there. And in fact, they did not go through the full development process at the O'Neill. They just read it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I I won't go into the long story about the second year of the O'Neill and how they hadn't gotten to the O'Neill process yet. But the readings were an afterthought the second year. They were putting up two productions, full productions, the only time they did that at the O'Neill. And as an afterthought, they had readings of new plays The two plays that were given full productions have disappeared and have never been done again. The plays that were, (laughs) the plays that were read as an afterthought include, uh, lemon sky, Indian wants the Bronx and, uh, um, oh come on house of blue leaves oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a pretty interesting summer oh, Yeah, um,
1: they they knew they had something or they i guess they didn't know but they, they had they something whether they knew it or not they, they they
0: they were trying to come up with an excuse to get some other playwrights to come up to the o'neill and they thought oh well we'll, we'll read the plays and they did it on back porches and found mm-hmm. spaces they didn't have a process and at the end of that summer uh George White, who was running the O'Neill Center, said, oh, we're not going to produce full productions of plays. Our future is developing new plays. And it, starting in the third year, of the O'Neill, the O'Neill began to become the O'Neill. And then George hired uh, um, Lloyd Richards to come in and be artistic director of the Playwrights Conference. And, and thus was born the O'Neill Playwrights Conference. But so uh, although the O'Neill was important to Lanford and to lemon sky because he got to hear it and he got to hear it with Michael Douglas, who apparently was very good. Um, I I was talking to, um, I was talking to Marshall about this who attended the reading and he said it just read brilliantly and the reading was brilliant. You could have taken that cast and gone straight into rehearsal. Uh, he said it was, yeah. So, um, so it, it did not go through the the typical O'Neill reading, although it's an important part of the O'Neill's uh, history. Um, so, um, anyway, that's that. Where where else was I? Anyway, uh, yeah, I I, I always saw, I also told uh, Lanford, and he didn't disagree with me that I thought it was a play why the, that's made a case for why the sixties had to happen. Ah. That. Huh. that that this was all the this this exemplified an enormous amount of the 50s bullshit and ethos that we had to break through and we had to have the 60s to come and and break through the hypocrisy and break through uh, a a a lot of what is um what is dark about the play mm. you know uh, there's a lot of talk about you know smash the patriarchy today well this is certainly a play about uh, the patriarchy
1: yeah oh absolutely right yeah
0: um, so, you know, it was, it was very interesting. Did you, do you know the old joke that Victor Borker used to tell about, um, Leonard Bernstein has just won an award for explaining the music of Aaron Copeland to Aaron Copeland. Uh, <laughs> and, and I, 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 sometimes found myself doing that with Lanford
1: uh-huh. because
0: it just, he just opened a vein and, and bled and it bled into the page. He wrote the the third act. In 45 minutes. Oh, man. Uh, uh, Marshall Mason had come over to read the first two acts, and while Marshall was reading the first two acts, Lanford went into the other room, wrote the third act, handed it to Marshall, then went into his bedroom and started to cry because... It, uh, what he had found in writing the third act was so much of what he had repressed for years. Yeah. But it, 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 it was, uh, when you're writing that fast and that hot, you really don't understand entirely what you're writing. It's just coming out in an intuitive flow. Now he had enormous craft as well. And he, he became an even more sophisticated craftsman as he went along. But this was, uh, the most intuitive play that he wrote that came, uh, very much out of his own experience. And it's one of the rare autobiographic plays uh, that uh, doesn't suffer by being autobiographic. Usually an autobiographic play, the central character does not drive the play. Mm -hmm. Usually an autobi... If if, if you think about the way you live your life and you talk about something that, you know, uh, something in your life from a day or two ago, you're going to say, oh, something interesting happened to me. You don't say... I, oh, I did something interesting the other day. No. Something interesting happened to me the other day. And this is, a. almost everybody talks this way, as if events in your life are things that occurred to you rather than things that you initiated. So when you people write autobiographic plays, they tend to write plays in which the autobiographic character is very passive mm-hmm. and, reaction, and and reacts. And a passive, reactive character does not drive a play terribly well. You need somebody with with real agency to, to drive the typical play. And I said, uh, I was talking to him. I said, you avoided the curse of the autobiographic play. He said, yeah. He said, that was one of the reasons that, uh, it took me so long to get started writing the play. Cause I knew what the dangers were and I didn't want to have him be, uh, reactive and autobiographic. Uh, in that. And he, way. he
1: sort of describes that in the opening monologue too. Mm. He, he sort of lays out one of the things that had worried him about starting the project or from speaking through Alan was the how to interpret himself, trying to not be the hero, trying to not be passive. And eventually at the end of that, he basically comes to this conclusion. The line is, let it tell itself. Yeah. And it will be, the, and now I'm not quoting, and it will be the mirror back at me, basically.
0: Yeah. So um, he was well aware of the technical challenge of writing an autobiographic play, but Alan is, is not as passive as a lot of autobiographic characters because A, he has a strong objective. He wants a family. B, he wants to do things on his own damn terms. And so he's in a pretty open revolt against uh, a lot of what his father's trying to impose on him so um he's not as uh, as passive as say um oh the neil simon character in broadway bound is pretty bloody passive you can barely remember a thing he does except bear witness <laughs> ex- ex- except bear witness to what other people do it's still a pretty mm-hmm. good play but but the mother owns the play in broadway bound uh, the, yeah. uh, the, the 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 simon surrogate uh in fact Uh, He gives this, he gives the Simon gives his surrogate in Broadway bound a case of the flu to justify him having low energy. (laughs) I don't know if he realized it at the time because, you know, Simon sometimes was not as self-reflective as as you might hope, but, (laughs) um, but it becomes an alibi for the character not driving the play. Oh, he has the flu.
1: And you know. Interestingly, I mean that in Lemon Sky, you, you there is an illness motivator, but you get the sense that he's deciding, he's the character is actively deciding in the moment to feign illness as a sort of a pushback against his father. So, just very opposite of the Neil Simon character,
0: for yeah. Sure. But there's a, there's a, there's an enormous amount of stuff which is sort of anticipating what's going to happen in the sixties. There's they're the poets that he encounters who sound like that they're people who've been influenced by uh, Allen Ginsberg who has certainly become a, a, a major figure in the '60s. So you've got the beginning of the sort of d- dissident culture that's uh, that is popping up at his school. There's the beginning of you know a gay sensibility. Uh, we certainly would view uh, Carol's uh, um, promiscuity with sailors and stuff as being. You know, I think we would consider that still risky behavior, but not, quote, shameful behavior in the way that it, w- it was in those days. You know, today we're, we're all about sex positivity, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but um, there's, a, I, I, as I said, I said to Lanford, I said, I, thought, I always thought this was a play about why uh, the 60s had to happen. And I, I said to him, um, I wish you would write the sequel. I would like to know what happened to them in the 60s. Uh, and this was at a point where he'd stopped writing entirely. But we were sitting and having a cup of coffee, and he said, "He said, you know, the real, the real Carol didn't die in that accident." Oh wow! I said, "Oh." He said, "I just thought it was kinder to kill her off than to have her linger on the way she did for the rest of her life. She was very badly injured in the in the accident, but I just thought it would be kinder to to kill her." Uh, <laughs>
1: oh man!
0: <laughs> you go. Oh okay. So uh, uh, you know, he could not know that he was anticipating the '60s. I mean, uh, that th- that was what the play was about when he was when he was writing it, because he was writing it so instinctually. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, one of
1: the other things that is interesting that it and this maybe he more consciously knew he was doing. You don't know, but I, I'm so much of the play is is about California too. Oh. There's just, I mean, if you took the whole, all the words of the play and pulled out the chunks that are just like descriptions of California, analyses of what California is like, at least at the time, you'd be left with a much shorter play.
0: Well, this is the other thing that I think Lanford has not been given much credit for or analysis regarding, which is he, of all the American playwrights I know, he may have written more plays about more corners of the country than any other playwright I know. Huh. You know, he he wrote uh, this is his California play. He wrote a Baltimore play. He wrote a play that took place in the North Shore of, uh, of uh, Chicago, uh, a couple of plays that took place in, in New York. He took a, pl- a play that took place in the Redwood Forest. Of course, his plays that take place in his hometown in yeah, Missouri. Oxford,
1: yep.
0: uh, there's a play that takes place in Arizona.
1: Lebanon.
0: Yeah. There's a play that takes place in an archaeological site in downstate il- uh, Illinois uh he um he just kept writing he he was broke in so many different corners of the country and all of that registered on him uh the other thing the other thing that was interesting to me was that for a long time he thought that he was a a poet or a short story writer and we were having a conversation about second city which, you know, I'm, uh, is important to me because I wrote a book about Second City, something wonderful right away. And it turned, around, it turned out that going to Second City was a huge, had a huge impact on him. Uh, that watching the early Second City Company, watching uh, Barbara Harris and Severn Darden, in fact, he opens one of his plays quoting Severn Darden by name. Wow. Uh, he suddenly realized watching what they were doing on stage improvisationally Uh, that he was a playwright, that what he wanted to do was to to put behavior like that on stage, that he shouldn't be writing poetry and he shouldn't be writing uh, short stories. It's in a sense analogous to what Edward Albee went through, who thought he was a poet, until uh, Thornton Wilder told him, no, you're you're not really a very good (laughs) poet, but you might make a good playwright. Um, And... This also speaks. I, I find very interesting the whole community of artists. Uh, I was talking to uh, Lanford about influences, and and he said, I said, you know, people whenever they talk about you, partially because you knew him and actually worked with him on a, a project or two. People always relate you to Tennessee Williams, and I say I think I think that's fair, but. When I think of the influences on you, uh, the, the greatest influence I see is Thornton Wilder, and he got very enthusiastic. He says yes, he says exactly, <laughs> I, and he and he and he says okay. Why do you think Thornton Wilder? And I said, well, there's a playfulness in relationship with the audience. There's a sense of look what I can do on the stage. Look how I can bend time. Look how I can, you know, how how I what I can do, acknowledging that the audience is there. Mm-hmm. And he said that. Um, he said that Thornton Wilder was a huge influence on him. So you've got Thornton Wilder being a huge influence on him and on Edward Albee, which I think is awfully interesting. Um, He also said, which I I found interesting, uh, that people said that he was Chekhovian way before he ever read any Chekhov. And I said, well, that... (laughs) I, I said, well, but you were influenced by Chekhov. He says, how if I didn't... If I didn't know any Chekhov, I said, You were influenced by Chekhov. I said, You knew William Inge's work, right? And I said, Oh, he said, Oh, yeah, of course I knew William Inge's work. And I said, Well, William Inge was powerfully influenced by Chekhov, so you got Chekhov through Inge. And he looked at me, he says, Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that sometimes you can be influenced by artists, not by having direct yeah. in- contact with the artists, but by having contact with artists who've been affected. By those artists, I don't know if years ago, and I've never been able to find the article, but I remember there was an article about talking to a lot of playwrights about who their influences were, and the name of the article was "And of course Chekhov," because all the <laughs> all, all the playwrights reeled off all their influences, and at the end they all said, "And of course Chekhov," because everyone was influenced by Chekhov. Yes. So uh, that would certainly be on my list too, and of course Chekhov. Mm-hmm. so he's um, um he's uh, he, he, he he reflected so much of the American experience and so much of a uh, very hard living you know he made no bones about it. at one point he was a hustler to stay alive yeah you know um that he was you know he was broke and and saw uh, an, an enormous amount of a, a very tough and very seedy living. Um,
1: Do you think that that, that part of his life is what makes this portrait of this family in California painted with somewhat of a nostalgic brush, even despite the, the pain and the darkness that certainly is there. Despite all that, it does seem clear. And I think we've even talked about this already that Alan wants to be a, that that is a place that he wants to be at one point he he reflects wonderfully on the fact that he calls it home. It's sort of flabbergasting to him.
0: Yeah. I mean, on the one hand it's repressive. And on the other hand, he desperately wishes he had the love and security of a traditional home. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Ronnie, he sees, you know, the, almost the ideal of the traditional mother. She's absolutely everything you would want a mother to be, except when her, when it comes right down to it and she's forced to choose Between protecting and siding with Alan and protecting her own kids, she's, of course, going to choose her own kids.
1: Well, I wonder even if it starts a little earlier than that, because Alan is present on stage when Penny describes Douglas making a pass at her. Yeah. And he watches Ronnie basically say, don't worry about it. It's well, no big deal. You should stay. And I, I, wonder if that that sort of swirling for the character about understanding who's who, Ronnie's real, you know, a uh, 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 loyalty is. To.
0: I think Ronnie also has a sort of semi-realistic. Isn't quite the right word because it gives like the whole. But but she understands the good and the bad of Doug and the yeah. good and the good of Doug is that he's a good supplier that they've got a, a you know a healthy marriage but she also knows that Doug is a guy he's a 50s guy he's a guy who measures guide him by getting laid and drinking and and having a car he's got that wonderful speech about you know why doesn't why doesn't Alan want to know what it's like to to to, to race down a highway in a in a, a convertible with your arm around a, a babe you know right yes mm-hmm. which when you consider that, that that was not Lanford's appetite or experience at all, that he is able to write that from the inside for Doug, that it's a, it's, it's almost a lyrical speech for Doug. Yeah, yes, really. How really. empathetic Lanford was and that he was able to write it from the inside of a character who's basically the closest thing to the villain in the piece. He absolutely yes. understands mm-hmm. this man's psychology um, and uh, and understands his his sort of joy. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Yeah. And, and, and while Douglas certainly is, uh, yeah, yeah, the villain or, or yeah, but, and he, he comes off as a, as a creep at the end when we learn he's been, you know, uh, preying on Penny, but then also shortly after that, Carol describes that he made several passes at her when she was even younger. So that all comes off, but I I don't, I, I don't know if the play is necessarily empathetic to Douglas, but it does, I think it does try to paint him in the best light that it maybe can. Well, I think the thing is, is. that
0: Douglas is 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 trying to be what he thinks that American male is supposed to be in that sort yes. of 50s post-war thing, that in a sense he is a, 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 to say victim isn't quite the thing, but he's being pressured by society to subscribe to, this is what a, a you know, a, a, somebody, you know, a, a guy who beats his chest and uh, and I am a man and all that crap, you know. <laughs> Uh, I
1: wonder if that is where some of the why the painting stuff comes back up. So like in the middle of the play, Alan describes finding a bunch of Douglas's old paintings from when he was a kid. And they were apparently these sort of uh, uh, picturesque, Airplane paintings, yeah. and now Douglas like works on fixing planes. Yeah, and so you sort of get the sense that like maybe he had a more romanticized sort of uh, attraction to flying and art that he sort of had to capture well, inside it, of a machismo mechanic fixer. Sort and, of personality, but still with planes,
0: and he and he and he still has this you know connection with art because he's a he's a compulsive photographer and oh right is, you mm-hmm. know is
1: in the dark. and woodworker apparently a while yeah. back
0: <laughs> yeah so there's something there's something else there the interesting thing and it's in uh, it's in uh, uh, it's published in uh, in the introduction to Lemon Sky and in, in one of the books in one of the published editions but it's something that Lanford also said to me I said did you ever get any feedback from the real people on the play. Hmm. And uh, his two uh, half-brothers, it was like, you know, many years later, said, this play is very valuable to us because it makes us understand what was going on that we were too young to understand at the time. And uh, was there any feedback from his father about the play? And he didn't get it directly, but the, apparently the father said, yeah, that's about right. The father thought wow. <laughs> The father thought that it was accurate.
1: Wow. Well, that, hey, that tells you something about the, just the level of skill and empathy and, and and willingness to really, I mean, if, you know, he comes off as some something of the villain of the play, and he still felt it was about right.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, Lanford stayed very close to his stepmother. I mean, he, 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 oh. he, he, he I, I mean, not that they were constantly in touch, but that she was an emotional touchstone for him, and uh, he just thought she was wonderful. But he gets thrown out of you know California, yeah. California Paradise, where he has his own room, you know, and all the rest of that stuff, and he ends up uh, uh, sleeping on benches in parks, and yeah. uh, and 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 ends up, you know, having having to hustle to stay alive, mm-hmm. until he begins to until he begins to find himself.
1: So and and you you talked about like the California Paradise there, and and in the same way that the family is sort of, to Alan, this almost paradise, but has a really dark and painful underworld, under thing that is discovered. That, that The way that California is described and analyzed, I find that to be uh, comparable in the play too. There's all these picturesque descriptions of the air and it's like heaven and the mountains, but he also talks about the torching desert he talks about how they all have to plant fake grass basically because there's no green in california how the californian like brain is well, insane it, uh, and, is it's that, it's, and it's
0: that particular area of california there's also the the fires that california are, yes all oh, right prone mm-hmm. to and uh i apropos of uh of, I saw a detail in the newspaper today that I thought Lanford would appreciate that apparently the smell of, of, of uh, charred wood is getting into the wine that's
1: being produced in California today. <laughs> I thought that's, a, that's That a, would, that would appear in this play yeah. if that news had come out. I mean, yeah, that's he, very he, poetic. He, yeah. He would have,
0: he would, he would I think he would have, he would have loved that, but uh. he, uh, uh, it's, it's a play that uh, he, uh, I'll, t- I'll, I'll just tell you a few other stories that you might Please, m- might, yes. might enjoy. He was, he was writing a, a speech for the uh, production with uh, Chris Walken, and he wrote a speech for the character of Alan. And Walken apparently at that point was a very quick study. Walken looked at it, put it down, and he recited the speech to Lanford, imitating Lanford. Apparently Walken, <laughs> although he has been the subject of being imitated himself, has a very good ear and can imitate others very well and so he just he imitated Lanford in repeating this speech and Lanford just said I'm sitting there and he's nailed me it's the sound of my voice coming back doing that and Walken could see the effect on on, on Lanford and, he, and at the, after doing the speech he says gotcha
1: <laughs> wow
0: gotcha yeah you know. awesome. <laughs> And, and indeed, he, he, he did. Um, so it's, uh, that was such a, when the play opened, it actually got very good reviews off Broadway, but closed very quickly. And I thought, Jesus Christ, if a play this good, getting good reviews can be slammed closed that quickly. God, New York must be tough. <laughs> um, and um, but I think it was a, it was it came at a point where Lanford said it came at a point where the um, uh, uh, you know Time and Newsweek had done cover stories about the generation gap and everybody was sick to death of what they thought the play was about the generation gap
1: you know yeah, they were talking about yeah.
0: the sixties of course but then they weren't talking, but still he sort of thought that that didn't help and also Chris Walken and Chris and Charles Durning uh, were not stars at the time. So, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's certainly a play that uh, the people, as they rediscover, um, they keep d- discovering deeper things about the play and, uh, and, and uh, people have very strong uh, relationships to the play. It's also the play, when they made the movie, uh, that's when uh, Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick met and that was how, how, they, how they got married. They met making the movie. And, yes, I've read that too. And La- and Lanford said, "Where's the gratitude? Why didn't they name one of the kids after <laughs> why, why, why didn't they name one of the kids after me or or or, uh-huh. or 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 Skyler or something like that or Lemon? Lemon's a good name for a kid." <laughs>
1: <laughs> Boy, I'm glad they didn't. That poor kid. <laughs> but
0: he, uh, uh-huh. as I think I said, he was uh, when they made the film. Uh, he had nothing to do with the film. And then he he watched it, and he was floored by how good it was. He just thought that there was a they got just about everything that he, that he intended. The thing that's interesting about the film is that when the people are speaking in the present, when you have the older version of Alan speaking to the older version of Ronnie and Doug, and all, most of them appear as older versions and tell you what their futures are, uh, they're talking at sort of an uh, an imaginary bar, at a sort of platonic right. bar. They're sitting there with, you know, beers, Mm -hmm. you know, and and singing snatches of what's on the jukebox. And they also have enough detail as to be a little bit kinder about themselves and about their memories than they are in the moment of the action of the play. So they're able to Mm -hmm. comment on the play with a bit of remove. Yeah. Uh, And they also are talking about their own, looking back on their own naivete, like when Ronnie is trying to scare Alan off from getting involved sexually with Carol because Carol apparently will sleep with anything. Ronnie's trying to come up with some horrible disease (laughs) that that will, that will, that that will scare Alan. And he says, well, you know, basically if you sleep with her, you're at risk of getting trichinosis, which of course, you know, is a disease you get from eating bad pork. And, Mm -hmm. and, and Alan says, and then Ronnie turns to us in the present. She says, "I was desperate to come up with something, and I came up with trigonosis. You know, for God's sakes." And mm-hmm. Alan, in the present, talking to the audience at the bar, says, "And I believed it. You could tell me anything then. You know, mm-hmm. I absolutely believed it. You know." And then they go back to the, to you know, to the scene in the fifties
1: where she's making shit up, and he's believing Buying it. it, totally. Yeah. yeah. And yet yeah, they- actually, that that moment is is for me one of the things that I I, I it captures what I think one of the things that Lamford did so well, which was to be both deprecating and empathetic to his younger self. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a hard tightrope to walk because he's willing to make that joke about yeah. how he was when he was that age. I believe anything you told me. But it's not like he slams himself all the t- time, which you do sometimes see that in autobiographical plays. He, the the self character almost becomes the villain because they're so wanting to 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 judge their own actions in no, the future.
0: He, he knows how green he was. He yes. knows how naive he was. And he's also sort of beguiled by how green he was. He, he doesn't want to be that kind of green anymore. But, you know, sometimes you're nostalgic for for the more innocent version of yourself. He also just sometimes will, will just throw a, a line in. There's a point where there's sort of some banter back and forth. And somebody says a line and he turns to the audience and he says, that's my favorite line in the play. And then yeah. goes back into the scene.
1: Yes, yeah, it's like a, it's a, some, some sort of joke. And he's like, yeah, that's my favorite joke in yeah. the whole play. That's great. And then there's a mm-hmm. point
0: where, where he's goofing around with Carol and they're joking about one thing or another. And he says, Of course, I didn't realize as I was goofing around with her that six months later she'd be dead. And mm-hmm. it, your stomach just drops out. Because mm-hmm. from then on, you're watching Carol as this doomed character. Mm hmm. Um, or,
1: or, like the way they talk about the, the really important photograph that sort of floats through the whole play. They mention that this photograph is taken and, the, and, and actually the reaction to it by Douglas's mom, Alan's grandma, way before in the present action of the play they ever take the photograph. And it, it sort of establishes it, it pulls it forward. And then when uh, Douglas rips it up, yeah. they are able to bring back some of those refrains from the outside folks. Oh, well, in
0: you know, it. going back to my theory, there's some terrific negotiations over objects there. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's. Um, um, but it was also. It was also one of the things fascinating to me about both this play and uh, his plays in general. And I sort of hinted at it when I was talking about why I dedicated the play to him. Playwrights, as they look at other, uh, the plays that they watch when they're, when they're growing and they're forming their own style, look at some plays and say, oh, you can do that. I didn't know that you could do that on stage. You can do that. Oh, you can get away with that. Oh, look, they did that oh, if they did that, then I can do my version of that. And uh, Lanford, almost more than any other playwright for me, was the one who told me what I could do, Mm -hmm. what I could get away with, technically. Um, How theater doesn't have to be just this naturalistic account of what these characters do, that you can do alternate versions of scenes, that you can fragment scenes, that you could almost... Do with scenes what Picasso did with, uh, um, you know, putting two eyes on the same side of the face, and I'm blanking on the name of that of that technique. But uh, uh, he was uh, he he gave us license. He gave us license uh, as Albie did. Like as soon as uh, as soon as Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and uh, and the Zoo Story came out, you know, there any American play after that. Uh, bore the DNA of a of of Zoo Story and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah, and also uh, they, these were, the playwrights were conscious of this with each other. Uh, Lanford wrote a terrific uh, uh, his uh, an earlier play called Balm and Gilead.
1: Oh, I love Balm and. Gilead. Oh, it's a great yeah. play.
0: Um, but uh, there's a long
1: monologue for Darlene. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, it's like 10 minutes at oh, least. Oh, no, it's
0: longer than that. It's 20, 25 minutes. I've 20, 25 uh, minutes long. Y- y- yeah. yeah I've,
1: I've seen it performed twice. Yeah. And both times I thought it was outstanding. Yeah. Which it, all, it has potential to not be, I think, depending well, how um,
0: long it is. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I said, how did you come to write that? He says, I don't know if I'm going to tell you. I said, why not? He says, well, it doesn't it, it doesn't speak very well for me. I said, oh, come on. Why not? He said, Okay. I wrote it because Arthur Coppett wrote a really long monologue in Oh Dad, Poor Dad, and I wanted to see if I could get away with writing a longer one. (laughs) And I said, why are you reluctant to tell me that? He says, well, don't you think Arthur would be pissed? I said, I don't think Arthur would be pissed. And I told that to Arthur, and he said, oh, isn't that marvelous? Oh, thank you for telling me that. That's awesome. (laughs) He He says, my monologue got him to write that monologue. That's great. Mm-hmm. You know, that, the, that there was that sense of, uh, of the joy of people discovering new techniques and challenging each other. One of my favorite stories about George Gershwin was he was driving uh, on the street one day and he saw sort of a, a, a not very well-known songwriter walking on the street. But the guy had written a song that had a technical device that delighted him. And he just scooped this guy off, off the street and took him to a party because there were always parties going on in New York at that time, apparently, when Gershwin was around. And he sat the guy down, and he says, This is listen to this, gang, listen to this. Listen to what he does with this song. And he sits the semi-known songwriter down to play at the piano and play the song. And Gershwin then starts raving about the song and about the technical challenge that's in the song. And then Gershwin gets down and starts improvising, incorporating the technique. At the piano instantly he's assimilating what the guy did and making and doing his own version and building on it yeah so, so this dialogue between playwrights sometimes it's acknowledged sometimes it isn't like i've always believed that john osborne when he wrote look back in anger was writing his version of streetcar named desire you could mm. do cast the, the four leads with the same four actors
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I've observed that as well. In, In some ways I, so I wrote a play, actually, I don't know if you know this or not, but you, uh, judged a competition I it wasn't really a competition, but we, we, I was in playwriting class, the full-length version. We all wrote plays, and one of them was going to be selected for the season the next year. And you selected the play, and it happened to be my play, ah! a play called Visiting, ah! uh, which was very much informed by your play Bluff, ah! which was very much informed by Lemon Sky. And so it's, it, I think that is a fascinating idea to track the lineage, not just of playwrights and their influences, but specific plays and moments.
0: Yeah, there, it's it's not only a thematic discussion, but it also becomes a technical. Mm-hmm. It becomes a technical conversation, and and uh, you know I think that the general public has has uh, sort of cliched uh, and inaccurate view of of people in the theater that everybody's you know backbiting and competitive and you know uh, stabbing each other in the back or trying to run each other off the road. I mean, there were a few people like that. You know, uh, he's gone, so I feel free to say it, but Israel Horowitz was hideously competitive and was not a particularly pleasant writer to be around. Mm. Um, uh, But most most playwrights are incredibly supportive of each other and enthusiastic and try to help each other along. Um, I had an early one-act musical. I wrote book music and lyrics for a little half-hour musical that was done off-off-Broadway. And as the performance began, I was sitting down at the piano, and I looked into the audience, and there was Stephen Sondheim with a notebook wow. sitting in the audience. And at the end of the show, he goes, "Let's go." And he takes me <laughs> off to he takes me off to a a, a, a a restaurant, you know, a dive in in the theater area, and he spent a half an hour analyzing my half hour musical with very detailed notes, and then we and we talked for a couple of hours. I remember also when I was very early on the scene, I got a call out of nowhere from John Guare saying, people are telling me I should take you to lunch. How would you like to have lunch? So I went and had lunch with John Guare, who had called me out of the blue. And it's something that I, I try to do myself, but particularly if I see a play that opens, that I think gets unfair reviews. Mm. And I know how discouraged the, you know, an uh, early career playwright will be to get unfair reviews on a play that they think is good. And I will sometimes just call up out of the blue and say, uh, I don't think you were treated fairly. I think this is a really good play. Let me take you to lunch. And I try to encourage them not to be discouraged. And I tell them all the stories of the very good plays that got lousy reviews the first time around and were vindicated. Uh, uh including a few of mine. Uh, <laughs> 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 and, um, and, uh, you know, I say, you know, don't let this discourage you. Write the next damn play. I'm I, 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 I'm very critical. And what you did, you know, really excited me. And I want you to know that you've got, I think you've got a real talent and you should, you wow. don't be discouraged by these people. Uh, I'm not the only person who does this. I know a lot of writers feel a responsibility to do that with other writers. Um hmm. We're at a point where it's almost impossible to make a real living as a playwright anymore unless you write the book to a hit musical. Right. Yes. You know, when's the last time a, a, a straight play had a commercial run of more than a year? I can't remember.
1: Yeah. I, I I know a playwright who, who gets produced fairly regularly and they call their playwriting money their bicycle money. Yeah. It's just like that. You know, every couple of years I can afford to replace my bike with the money I get playwriting. <laughs> yeah. No,
0: I, my my pension comes from writing television. You know, I, yes. I, I spent a number of years writing television and out of all the television I wrote, I wrote one really good thing, which is I wrote the TV adaptation of uh, Pack of Lies for the Hallmark uh, Hall of Fame. And if you look at the credits and the end credits, you'll see that I'm listed as creative consultant. But I actually, <laughs> but I actually wrote that script uh-huh. and, and it was very good and it won awards and stuff and nobody knew that I wrote it. But I was glad to write all the other oh.
1: stuff. We're telling your story now. It's getting out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, the interesting thing was that there was a producer who saw that and said, called up the, called up the producer of uh, Pack of Lies, a man named uh, Robert Hallmey, and said, okay, who really wrote that script? And Robert Holmey said, oh, it's this guy, Jeff Sweet. And this producer called me up and he said, I loved what you did. I want to commission you to write a, 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 a TV movie for me, whatever. I, I just, I love your work. So I wrote uh, a, a screen, I pitched an idea. He said, that's it, the first thing I pitched. He says, we're doing that. Okay, go and write it. Gave me $70,000 to write this script. Whew. So I wrote the script, gave it to him, expecting notes. He says, I've got no notes. He says, this is one of the best scripts I've ever re- read. Now it's my job to sell it. He couldn't sell it. People Ugh. said, "People said it's a great script. We don't want to do it. It's too depressing. And finally, he, wow. finally he turned to me and said, I can't sell it. He says I'm proud that I commissioned it, I'm proud that this came into the world because I commissioned it. I can't sell it. It's yours, do whatever you want with it. And I turned it into a play and it became The Action Against Saul Schumann.
1: Oh, yes. Which ended yep. up which
0: mm-hmm. ended up winning uh, an American Theater Critics Association award for uh, for uh, regional playwriting and got a terrific review out of the Times. And uh, the royalties well, I'm
1: delighted to know the story behind that script because the, I the, really like that script.
0: <laughs> but the royalties on that play are are so tiny as compared to what I was paid to write it or first as a screenplay. Yeah. Wow. So, um, you know, sometimes television turned into, for that matter, I was hired to write a, a screenplay for uh, Dustin Hoffman's company. Uh, Cause I had pitched uh, the idea of a court martial at Fort Devons, which was uh, mm-hmm. a, a true historical thing that I had discovered. I another wrote another
1: great play for those folks out there. It's in Jeff sweet's anthology. You could go buy it right now.
0: Yeah. Uh, and um, it was written for Court TV, and Court TV went out of business. And uh, uh, Hoffman's company, uh, in fact, it was headed by the playwright Murray Schiskel. So Murray said, well, you know, you wrote a nice screenplay. It's not going to get done. Go do what, the, what you want. So I wrote it, you know, as a play. And that play won the Adelco Award uh, when that was done. So I've had two plays that came about from television writing but I got paid Uh, for writing the screenplays way more than I ever got off the royalties. Yeah. So uh, did I mention that I'm trying to raise money to take,
1: (laughs) to take counselor? Yes. Counselor. To to the end, to the end, gotten
0: wonderful reviews. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, playwriting to be a professional playwright for the most part, even if you're quote successful, for the most part, you're not going to make your living doing that. You're just going to have the best time of your life doing plays you know, putting yeah. put, putting them up I and mean, being in the rehearsal room and having the pleasure of working with, with actors and getting to know fabulous people. I've worked with some of the best actors in the country, you know, getting the least amount of money they've ever gotten. You know, <laughs> you know uh, but but actors are very idealistic. You know, I, 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 you, I don't think you know the story about Bluff, but when Bluff was done in Chicago, uh, when I was writing the character of Neil, I had John Cryer in mind. And I knew John a little bit because I had babysat him. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So I, I sent it to him, and he said, I really like this. I'd be interested in it. What's the deal in Chicago? And I said, well, the deal is the money is lousy. He said, how lousy? And I told him how lousy the money was to be playing the Victory Gardens Theater in Chicago. He says, that's really lousy money. Why on earth would I do this? I said, John, when I babysat you, I let you stay up till 930. <laughs> and he said you're right and he did the play because I let him stay oh, up until 9.30 that... wow. <laughs> so people are very a lot of actors are very idealistic and they will do things for next to nothing if they get pleasure out of doing it um, I will say that after after Lanford died uh, well, a couple things, one is that I had the great pleasure of uh, producing the Lifetime Achievement Award that Lanford got from the dramatist Guild And uh, that meant that we got Richard Thomas and we got Laurie Metcalf and we got uh, Judith Ivey and a lot of other people together uh, to get up and talk about how doing his stuff was, those things were key to their careers. In fact, uh, Richard talked about uh, Laurie doing uh, Balm and Gilead. And it was 25 years after she had done Balm and Gilead and his mention of her performance in Balm and Gilead, everybody in the room remembered it and broke into applause for a performance from 25 years before. Mm.
1: And Laurie oh.
0: Lori looked at me and said, I guess I'm glad I came. <laughs> 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 but um, also, uh, I had a, a lovely friend, a man named Glenn Roven, who alas uh, died young, but he had his own uh, audio company in which he just did recordings of whatever he wanted to do recordings of, usually classical music or, or, or high end popular music or jazz or whatever, or his own stuff. Cause he was a very good composer. And we were talking and I said, how much I loved audio drama. They, he, had, he did a, a, an audio recording of uh, an early version of Kunstler. He says, you want to produce some audio drama? I said, geez, I'd love to. Okay. What should we do first? I said, well, why don't we try to do audio versions of plays that there are no recordings of uh and try to get the original cast as much as possible and he said oh cool all right so who should we try to get first so first of course we thought oh edward alby so edward was a friend and i said this is the idea he says it's a great idea and i'm not interested go away <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, Lanford had died, but the second on the list was to, to do something of Lanford's. And I was friends with Marshall Mason and Tanya Bereson and people who control uh, Lanford's estate. And we got most of the original cast of Hodel Baltimore together. Marshall directed them. We got Judd Hirsch, Trish Hawkins, Brad Dourif, Conchata Farrell. Forty years after they had done it off-off-Broadway, when I had seen them in, in an, a garret on the Upper West Side before it moved to Broadway. 40 years later, we got them into a studio and recorded them in their original performances. And if you close your eyes, you absolutely think that it's 40 years back.
1: Wow. Uh, and, and, a, and is that something somewhere people could find? Yes. It's, uh, you can get it through
0: audible.com. There's also... It's on Audible. We also did uh, three one acts by that Lanford had written for the women in the company. So there's one, one act with Conchata Farrell and, uh, Stephanie, oh, I'm blanking on Stephanie's uh, uh, name, uh, 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 one of the great members of the uh, uh, of circle, uh, a monologue that Judith Ivy did that she won the OB for. You know, it's twenty years later, and she, I'm sitting in the studio, and she's just being ragingly brilliant, like three feet away from me, doing this extraordinary <laughs> monologue. And that's, that's uh, it's called that's called Lanford Wilson's Women, and it's three three one acts that he wrote for. Uh, the women of uh, Circle Rep with those women. So there, there are two audio things that I co-produced. I will never see a dime for doing this. <laughs> but my name is on the cover as being a co-producer. Marshall Mason came out of retirement to direct them again. Uh, we're all very proud of it. Uh, the the Hotel Baltimore cast, who all became stars out of Hol- Hot El Baltimore, were thrilled to get back together and within minutes fell into the old rhythms and were giving full tilt performances of these shows that uh, these parts that had uh, launched them to stardom 40 years before. So they're both, you can get them both for not very much on audible.com. And that was a a way for me to say thank you to Lanford was to, to, to be able to get those recordings made and to get those uh, performances uh, uh, out there and, and, and in a permanent form.
1: Well, That sounds like a good place then with that thank you for us to wrap up our conversation. We had a freewheeling dive through Lanford Wilson and through this great, great play, Lemon Sky. Thank you for being willing to come on the podcast and share these incredible stories from your life and work and from knowing Lanford.
0: Uh, Delighted. If we'd had more time, I would have told you the evening that I
1: introduced Lanford to Stephen Sondheim, but we don't seem to have the time. No, no time for that on this episode. That'll have to be uh, some someday in the future. I'd love to hear that story. Uh, folks, if you are out there and you want to continue having this conversation with us, you can follow us on our various social media accounts, uh, all at the handle noscriptpodcast, or you can email us at noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to recommend the podcast to your family and friends, we're on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. You can also like us on Facebook and the link to the new episode appears every Monday over there. We'll be back next week, Jackson at least will be back next week, and I'll be joining him, and we'll have another conversation about another great script between now and then. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen, joined today by Jeffrey Sweet. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.